everyone, it's Julia from Borderline Bravery, and this is my first podcast episode. I have a really hectic schedule, and it was suggested to me by a friend that I try out podcasting, so I figured why not? It's something I've been interested in trying for a long time, so let's finally give this a shot. I do want to start off this episode with the disclaimer that I am not a mental health professional. I am a graduate of a full DBT program. I almost have my bachelor's in psychology, and I have had many years of extensive mental health treatment. Along with lots of research, that's really the extent of my qualifying criteria, so please keep that in mind as you listen. This episode will briefly mention some potentially triggering topics, so if you are not in a safe headspace to hear vague discussions around suicidality, eating disorders, divorce, or self-harm, please come back to it a different time. And I also recommend preparing for any potential triggers by coping ahead. So get some ice to hold if you need, get yourself a glass of cold water, or otherwise plan ways to nurture your mental health if you feel like any of these topics may become dysregulating for you. If at any point you begin to feel unsafe, remember that you can pause, and please reach out to the appropriate person or hotline. The topic I chose for this first episode of the podcast is my personal journey through dialectical behavior therapy. I chose this topic so that those of you who are interested in pursuing DBT can get an idea of what it may be like, but I also chose it so that those of you who have already been through DBT may find some material that you can relate to, and so that those of you who have loved ones going through DBT or who are going to start DBT can get an idea of what that process may be like for them. Still, these are my personal experiences, and it's unlikely that this is a one-size-fits-all kind of deal, so I just ask that you take what fits or what may be helpful to you and leave the rest. So to start off, I think it's very important to give a little backstory to how I surrendered to treatment. Willfulness is a very big thing when it comes to people with borderline personality disorder seeking treatment, following through with treatment, anything having to do with treatment. There's a lot of willfulness there for a lot of people who have borderline personality disorder. So beginning DBT was not even close to an easy decision for me. It took me a long time to get through the doors of my first class. And it started back when I was freshly 17. I'd already had a lot of mental health struggles, primarily with self-harm and an eating disorder. And at the age of 17, I went through a really traumatic, severe breakup process and ended up attempting to take my own life. A friend of mine found out that it happened and called my mother. She rushed home from work and she immediately took me to the hospital. So from there, I entered treatment for the first time. In treatment, I saw my first glimpse of what recovery could be. I had people monitoring my symptoms, looking at my eating disorder and weight, and I began learning the first set of coping skills I'd ever heard. So this kind of started a cycle for me. Treatment is something I'd wanted for a while, and Prior to this first treatment experience I had, I'd been trying to get into an eating disorder treatment center to no avail because it's very expensive. If you don't know how expensive eating disorder treatment is, look it up. It's crazy. It's somewhere around $20,000 and up for one month of treatment without insurance. And one month is not that long in a lot of centers. It's very common. So I learned very quickly that my attempt to take my life got me the help that I'd been looking for very quickly. 
And this began a lot of what I now self-identify as parasuicidal attempts. And what I mean by that is that I wasn't really trying to take my life. I didn't really want to die. But I was very careless and very desperate to get more help. And I was willing to risk my life to make that happen. And it was very dangerous. But still, treatment was helpful. Definitely wasn't fun. A lot of people tend to think that it's like a vacation, but it's actually really hard work. You wake up at very early hours, and I mean 5 or 6 o'clock, and you're pretty much working your brain and working your emotions until the moment you go to sleep. And in between, there's not much for entertainment. You may have books, you may have something to color on, and you may have a TV that is very often controlled by staff, so you don't really even get to watch what you want. I didn't have a lot of freedom. And at times I'd get very restless and uncomfortable. So one night I became close to this girl who was my age and we had a discussion about how we really wanted to leave because this was not fun. We reached a point in that discussion where we just kind of looked at each other and we were like, what if we were okay? What if we just decided that we didn't need to be sad anymore? We didn't want to be here anymore, that we were okay to go home. And we thought that was brilliant. We thought we'd like unlocked the power in us okay like we were ready to go so we both grabbed the craft supplies and wrote out some reasons to live and the reasons why we wanted to go home and the next day when our psychiatrist came in we promptly took them to them my psychiatrist thought I was full of crap and honestly he was right I just wanted to go home be with my phone be with my internet be able to watch whatever I wanted on tv go outside when I wanted anything but being there at that point. But I was adamant and I kept telling him I was really, really okay and everything would be fine. I had just changed my mind and I was doing better. He looked at me eventually in that discussion and asked me if I'd ever heard of borderline personality disorder. This was the first time I ever heard of the diagnosis. So within a few days, he sat me down with my mom and explained to us what it was. During that discussion, I said I agreed, pretty much just saying whatever I needed to get out of there and go home. And eventually it worked, and I did. My mom came and got me a day or two later. The rest of that time period is kind of a blur. My plea to go home had not been what I actually needed. I didn't want to die, but I certainly was not safe and well enough to not be in treatment. So I wound back up there multiple times. Over the course of the next several months, I met a much older guy, and we dated, and by the time I turned 18, we got married. He and I moved to New Hampshire, and it wasn't long at all before I was back in treatment. But this time, I had insurance, so my first choice of treatment was to go get eating disorder help. So, I carried the term borderline personality with me in my back pocket as I went into treatment, not really understanding what it was. I don't even think at this point that I'd googled it. I just assumed it was like rapid cycling bipolar based off of what I'd been told and that there was all I really needed to know. Well, the eating disorder treatment center about the second or third time I walked through the doors hit me with an ultimatum and they told me they would help me again, of course, but only if I also went to the local community center and got something called DBT for their confirmed diagnosis on their end of what they believe to be borderline personality disorder. I did not like this at all. I felt very invalidated in 
my eating disorder-related struggles, I felt like they didn't believe I was sick or sick enough, which is a very powerful belief for many people with eating disorders. And so I fought them on it. It took a while and more than one meeting with the counselor there before I surrendered and said, okay, I would show up to my consult appointment and I would see what they had to say. So I showed up. This is when I first met Lindsay. Lindsay started off that appointment after we introduced ourselves and whatnot. She just kind of questioned how much I knew about BPD and about DBT. And as I said, I didn't really know much at this point. I kind of only knew the basics. So I told her what I did know and she kind of nodded her head and then came the first set of paperwork. It was a checklist of symptoms which she had me go through and tell her one by one if I related to them in order to meet the minimal amount to reach a diagnosis. Once I told her I related to a symptom, she would ask me how and how it kind of showed up in my life. And that was kind of when I surrendered to the fact like, okay, maybe I do have this. Some of the paperwork was informational as well and just told me about other people with BPD or suspected BPD. One of them mentioned Marilyn Monroe and I was kind of like, okay, cool. She was loved by a lot of people. So maybe this doesn't make me that strange. Maybe it's okay. Then there was the contract for DBT. (laughs) She went over this with me and I just sat there a little dumbfounded at first because I thought it was very odd that I had to sign a contract to get treatment. But of course, I later came to understand that many people drop out of DBT or miss multiple sessions because it's very hard. And frankly, it's kind of brutal at times. And so the contract is a way to ensure that everyone remained on the same page about what it would look like if we were to do anything, like stop coming or self-harm between sessions. So later, I became very thankful for this contract because it left me with a clear understanding of action versus consequence within treatment and what they were expecting of me. So began my journey with dialectical behavior therapy. So the first two memories that I have of DBT consist of sitting in the mall after my first individual session and the first time dialectics were explained to me. So in the first instance, after the first individual session I had with Lindsay, the concept of recovery took its first real hit at me. I was sat in the food court with my ex-husband and it all started hitting me at once because let's be honest here, recovery doesn't really wait for you to be in the comfort of your home to start. But the process has a mind of its own and it can hit you at any point. So I was sitting there, I was overwhelmed and plagued by all of these memories of doing things that I didn't value on a personal level. And I just remember almost crying in the middle of the food court right then and there, which at this point, crying in public wasn't that uncommon for me. But I think back to that moment now and I just, I can recognize how uncomfortable that was. So I called Lindsay, remembering that that was something I could now do, and she coached me for the first time. Right then and there in the mall, she started explaining that what I was experiencing was called justified guilt. And she explained to me the difference between justified and unjustified, which was something I had never heard of. And I don't think I fully understood it at that point. I can't even remember if I did what she suggested I do to work on it or what she suggested because I'm pretty sure I didn't do it. All I know is that I felt heard. And so my trust slowly began to seep into the therapeutic relationship that I was building. The other memory is when I had my first group session of DBT later that week. 
My instructor Jackie explained what dialectics were by drawing a small diagram on the board that connected acceptance and change. As I would assume it does for most people with GBT who first hear of the concept of dialectics, it went right over my head. All of it felt really confusing and overwhelming, like I had enrolled in some advanced collegiate course without yet stepping foot out of high school, but I nodded along anyway, and when she asked if we understood, I said yes. I was too afraid to admit that I had no freaking clue what she was talking about, and I refused to talk about the frustration building up because I felt blamed for not being able to change before. So at this point, I didn't really have the skills to confront these emotions, and I was in the habit of suppressing them and waiting until I was alone to deal with them. So when I got home later that night, I remember redrawing the diagram, looking over my notes, and staring at all of it until it slowly started to make more sense. And it would take me a really long time to really come to grips with it, but the work had begun at that point. With that work beginning came some of the most difficult sleepless nights I have ever experienced in my life. I empathize so greatly with people who don't make it past their first few weeks of DBT. And the primary reason for my ability to empathize that deeply is I remember what it felt like was happening in my head. There were so many terms and lessons I couldn't understand yet. And the thing about DBT that separates it from any academic learning is that you aren't just storing away this information to help in a future place of work. The information I learned once I started to understand it, opened a floodgate of traumatic memories. Shame, fear, so much more. It was not academic. It was a little bit, but at the core of it, it was personal. So I remember one night in particular, I went into full-blown psychosis. I convinced myself I had a different diagnosis that I didn't, convinced myself that people in my past had done things to a much greater extent than they actually had, and I got lost into all of it. I didn't sleep a wink. I was dissociative. I was having strings of full-blown panic attacks that made me sick to my stomach. And by the time I called Lindsay at 11 a.m. the next morning, she was practically begging me to get some sleep. I was so emotional. I kept telling her that my ex-husband's family who lived upstairs would judge me. She told me it was more important that I got sleep than to avoid their judgment, and eventually it worked. I got some sleep, and I woke up the next day to fight again. That night has stuck with me, though, because I don't think I'd ever felt that out of control of my mind in my life the way that I did that night. And I won't even lie, my obsession over doing DBT the quote-unquote right way was at the core of it. I wanted to fix everything in one night. I wanted to be over with. I wanted to become better in one night, but it doesn't work like that. And I had been right about the fear of the people around me judging me because no one else could see what was really going on inside my head. At one point, a little bit further into the recovery process, I told my mother-in-law that I needed to go to the hospital because I was so overwhelmed that the urges to self-harm were returning. I hadn't had them in a little while, so this was very scary for me. She said she would take me, and I remember sitting upstairs with my things packed, waiting for her to say that she was ready to leave. I overheard my sister-in-law tell her that she didn't have to do anything for me, that she could just let me deal, that she didn't have to take part in my game, that her life came first, that I would be fine. Those words seeped so far into my gut. I was just left there questioning 
as I was fighting these urges to do these things to myself, was I really that much of a burden to them at this point? Should I not have said anything at all about how I was feeling? I ended up carrying my DBT handbook with me to the hospital that day. I sat in the hospital bed, watching the nurses discuss whatever it was they were, convinced they were discussing me. No one wanted me there. No one thought I needed to be there. I felt such deep, cutting shame. Eventually, I remember just curling up in the bed and sobbing, reading my DBT handbook the best that I could take it in at that point. I didn't have the skills to vocalize what I wanted to say. And that was that I was trying. I was really, really, really trying. So I just read it. And I was reading it for my benefit, of course, but I was also hoping that they saw me reading it. I was hoping they could see me trying to do better. After several hours, I was discharged, I was evaluated, and my urges had passed, and I was safe to go home. So I went into a small waiting room to contact my ex-husband to pick me up, and he was angry. He, too, was completely unable to see at that point that I was trying. He was tired of me going to the hospital, didn't even try to hide it. By the time I got home that afternoon, I shut down. I had wanted to make the right decision, but it seemed like the people around me had led me to believe that I'd done the opposite, that I'd made the wrong decision. The next time I went into Lindsay's office, she brought up that hospital trip, and I remember shrinking in on myself, prepared to get lectured about how it had been unnecessary. But Lindsay told me the words I had no idea at that point that I really needed to hear. She said I'd done a good job by not self-harming. Told me it was good that I'd not attempted. And she encouraged me to do that anytime I felt unable to keep myself safe. So that was the day my little bit of trust in my teamwork with Lindsay blossomed into something incredibly powerful. It was one of the biggest turning points for me in the recovery process. And after that session, I felt like no matter how far down I might spiral while trying to make sense of the process, there would be someone there to say that they were proud of me when I climbed back up to the top to meet them there. So treatment continued. I ran into obstacles, primarily my eating disorder. I had to receive simultaneous treatment and I would go to treatment all day aside from the times when I was in DBT. Eventually, I got transferred to Lindsay's CBT class and began working with she and another clinician named Megan. Things really kind of picked up speed there. I started to understand things more. I was moving at a more rapid pace. I was taking in things academically well before I was able to put them into motion. And it's not typically suggested that people in DBT become close friends, but with monitoring, I became close to two of the girls. It was the first time in years I'd really made friends like that, and we were really adamant about navigating our friendships as skillfully as possible. So it was really helpful for me to have a couple people that I could count on to be there for me. It was helpful, I think, for all of us to have our counselors working as mediators to help us ensure that we were handling things healthily. Things were really passionate on a platonic level in a way that I hadn't really experienced before. Because as I learned over the years in various forms of treatment, there's a certain level of intimacy that you can develop with friends from treatment that you don't really reach for months, if not years, outside of it. You can spend so much time in treatment sharing personal details right off the bat. And so there's a foundation of trust there 
that in outside relationships doesn't really culminate until a lot of time has been spent with someone. So when I eventually fell off with one of the girls, that was really hard. I remember going to Lindsay and telling her that it felt as if I were going through something as heavy as a breakup. I remember feeling so much loss from that friendship. I specifically have a memory of crying in my bathtub, feeling like I was going to crawl out of my skin, and I had no idea how I would continue treatment if I had to sit next to this person every week, which I'm pretty sure is one of the primary reasons that friendships aren't really encouraged. But as stubborn as I may have been, Lindsay was tenfold, and at this point in my recovery, I'm not going to lie, pleasing Lindsay and doing whatever it was that she asked me to do was really important to me. The term favorite person wasn't really known to me back then. I don't think it was even on the internet so much, but in retrospect, I would definitely say that Lindsay was mine. At this point in my life, I didn't really trust a single person to the extent that I trusted her. I kept showing up to treatment, kept doing the work, kept getting better, and mastering the skills even when it felt like my brain was going to melt from the pressure. It's around this time that things get a little blurry in terms of chronological order because it was a really disturbing time. Everything began falling apart with my ex-husband. I was getting better, but I don't think that he could see it still. And I don't really think he was that determined to try. He stopped talking to me almost altogether. And when he did talk to me, he would get irrationally angry over small things. One morning, I asked his work schedule for the day, and he snapped at me, saying it had been the same for a while. And I countered with him, explaining that there were often times it changed regardless of it being his base schedule, but he didn't really want to hear that. So I started mentioning his behavior to Lindsay, and she stated that she was pretty frustrated with him because we both came to the conclusion that if things were upsetting him, He wasn't sharing with me, which is something he'd sworn to do during previous sessions that he'd tagged along with. Things really just got worse from there. I was met with a silent treatment a lot of the time, especially during times when I would try to ask him what was really going on. There was an insane amount of distance between us, and I really had no clue what I had even done, because for my side of things, the only thing I'd really been doing was going to treatment and working on my recovery. I know it wasn't easy, and I'd have moments where I'd lash out or be angry, but he'd also always come off as very understanding as someone who knew what I was going through and knew what the recovery process would look like. And in the end, I found out that he'd been having an emotional affair with a 17-year-old girl from work, which again was how old I was when he pursued me as well. So his friend at the time messaged me and said they needed to be honest with me about something. They told me he'd been trying to get closer to this girl who wasn't interested in him, that he'd started staying in the parking lot after work to be able to talk to her before going home. He'd been increasingly pushing moves on her, doing things like trying to hug her longer than she wanted. I was actually at my brother-in-law's high school graduation when I got sent all of these messages. I feel really bad that it happened there, but I remember just feeling like my entire world was shattering. It felt like all of the blood had drained from my body. And once again, one of the most public places you could be, there were hundreds of people in there. And I thought I was going to be sick. I had no family up there in New Hampshire at the time. I couldn't call Lindsay on a weekend. So I ended up nudging his mom and showing her the messages, just desperate for any kind of comfort. It was comfort that didn't come. She shrugged off the messages. 
I got up and I walked into the halls of the arena, not able to stand being near any of them. In the end, this just made my ex-husband angrier. When we got home that day, I asked to see his phone, which I didn't do often, but at this point it felt justified. One of the first things I saw when he handed it over was that he'd also made a tender, so I confronted him about that. He started slamming his fist onto the steering wheel over and over, saying it was just how he felt. Knowing the amount of DBT that I did at that point, I just shook my head and said, No, that's not a feeling. That's an action. And I repeated that until it felt like I was beating a dead horse. I got out of the car, he continued punching the steering wheel, and I walked inside. I still wanted to save things, though. I blamed myself for a lot of it. If I hadn't been so sick, if I wasn't getting older, if... If, 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 I kept trying to talk to him, trying to find out what was really going on. I knew there had to have been something, because nothing had really changed on my end. But he wouldn't budge, wouldn't tell me anything other than the fact that he wasn't happy. One morning, I finally confronted him with the question, did he even want to be married to me anymore? He rolled off the bed, said no, started crying, so did I. I called Lindsay, leaving her a voicemail where I was scream-sobbing that he had told me he wanted a divorce and I didn't know what to do. She called me back and she kept asking me, had he said anything else? Did I know what was going on? The answer was no. I had no answers other than the fact that the man who had been lying in my bed that morning was no longer acting like a person I'd married. And I wasn't really confident in myself at this point yet, so of course I was still blaming myself, still stuck in the spiral, and I just wanted to be home. So in the end, I booked a flight back to Georgia from New Hampshire and came to see my family for about a week. I don't remember much of anything that happened that week, just tiny bits and pieces, some of which I don't feel the need to share because it coincides with some personal things, but what I do remember is one night I was sitting in my childhood bedroom and I called Lindsay and I told her that I was feeling suicidal. She told me she wasn't surprised at all, but I told her at that point, for the first time in ever experiencing something that heavy, I didn't even want to act on the urge. I don't remember her response to that. I don't remember anything really else from that trip. All I remember from that point is the feeling of, oh my god, this is actually doing something. Oh my god, this is working. Because when had I ever been so stable in such a situation like that? It had not happened. And by the time I went back in Lindsay's office for our next appointment, my ex-husband and I had decided to try and work on things and go to a marriage counselor. I figured things would all be okay. And then I received some shattering news. Lindsay informed me that she was moving. Our time working together would be ending after DBT graduation. And I definitely dissociated at that point and blocked a lot of the rest of the conversation out. I remember her asking if I had anything to say and me just sitting there frozen in a way she later described to me as a deer in headlights. I remember nodding my head, asking some questions I didn't really care about the answer to, and most of all I just remembered thinking what bad timing it was, which wasn't her fault, especially looking back on that, but it was pretty awful timing nonetheless. Yet the show had to go on. By that point, I'd pretty much mastered DBT, and I graduated. Lindsay gave a speech about me when it was my turn, hugged me, and we both cried. 
the friend I was still close to went home with me that day and we posed with our DBT certificates, bright-eyed with wide smiles. I'd done it. Despite everything that had happened in that last year, despite it being some of the hardest mental work I had ever done, I'd really completed the program and I was seeing the benefits day to day. Lindsay and I had our last session together, which hard is an understatement. She had been my partner through so much in that last year, several phone calls in an hour together a week, plus all of the time in DBT class. She wrote me a little note and my request about the work we'd done together, which I still have, and it eased some of my grieving. But mostly I remember not being able to say much during that session. I want to say I was angry, and maybe part of me was, because it felt very unfair that she was leaving at this point. But looking back, I am now able to note that more than anything, I was just sad. And walking out of her office that day felt really heavy and daunting. Although I wasn't going to be alone in finishing up my treatment at that center, I was alone in a new way. I wasn't with the same person that had been carrying myself through all of that. So it was very scary. But the work wasn't over yet. I knew I had to keep going. I was fortunate that at this point I got assigned to work with the other person who was leading DBT named Megan for my PTSD treatment in the form of cognitive processing therapy. So the familiarity aspect didn't go away too much. I still knew Megan and I still trusted her. She'd still heard everything I'd said in DBT classes and she knew me. So I did the work diving into my primary childhood trauma, breaking it down, reciting it over and over until I was desensitized from the worst of it, then applying DBT skill after DBT skill on top of that to ensure that I could pull through. Megan became really important to me, and she gave me faith in the idea that even though Lindsay had been the first person to care for me in a therapeutic environment that way, there were still some really wonderful people out there in the field who cared and would help me continue my journey. So when I finished CBT, I did end up leaving the center. I began further focusing on my eating disorder elsewhere. Life after both DBT and CPT was very different to how it was before. The friendships I started building were stable and healthy for the most part. For an amount of time, my relationship was stable too. For a while, I became really ashamed of having ever met BPD criteria. I don't really know what triggered that. I just remember one day thinking, I didn't want to be associated with the diagnosis anymore. And I think it was stigma that scared me away from it for so long. So I did a lot of mental gymnastics to combat that shame, even convincing myself for a while that they had gotten my diagnosis wrong. It wasn't until a couple years later that I accepted that they hadn't. And a few months after that, that I began to understand that having BPD before didn't mean I still had it. And that's where my confusion was coming from. I went over the symptoms with a new clinician at one point and confirmed I no longer met diagnostic criteria. And so that's when I began proudly saying I had recovered. And I know a lot of people don't want to say you can recover from BPD, but I think a lot of that is just semantics. Remission may be a better term for some, but the primary truth is that you can come out of treatment for BPD and no longer meet diagnostic criteria. I did discover over the next few years that my eating disorder had not gone away and DBT skills alone were not enough to combat it. My PTSD had also not completely dissipated. It showed its claws a few years ago in a really drastic way that I may get into in a later podcast, but I don't feel comfortable at this point. So, long story short, I ended up solidly deciding to leave my husband. 
and I moved back home to Georgia to be with my family. This certainly wasn't the end. I had another really intense episode about a year and a half after moving here, but since that episode, I've had my feet planted on the ground. My eating disorder is still present, but it's far more mild than it has ever been, and it really only pops up in an impacting way for maybe a day or two at a time every couple of months. I live on my own, and for the most part, I'm really stable, happy, and healthy. DBT skills are so deeply implemented into my life by now that I don't even think about the fact that I'm using them. They're second nature, which I've been told is the end goal. I haven't self-harmed since I was in DBT, which is over five years ago and absolutely crazy to me. Overall, I had to work really hard to get where I am, to find stability, to combat urges that were once overwhelming but are now just annoying. And I probably say to people now that I'm recovered from BPD. I think it's really important for people like me to make it known that you can get to this point when you're given a safe space and a chance and are ready to put the work in yourself. All right, so if you guys want to send me a message on Instagram, instagram.com slash bravery, feel free to do so. Let me know what you want to hear me talk about later. I believe the next episode is going to be more skill-based. I haven't quite decided which one yet, so let me know what you'd like to hear about. I'm thinking something from the core mindfulness skills would be helpful. I hope you all take care. If you got dysregulated at any point during this episode, please, please, please apply some skills. Go do those for a while. Go be mindful. Go watch something happy. I know you're strong. I know you care about your recovery, and I believe in you thoroughly. Thanks for listening.